Well, since our Lord Jesus said that Scripture cannot be broken, let me invite you to turn in your unbreakable Bible to Genesis chapter 38. If you're using one of the uh, Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 32. Page 32. Uh, just a few moments ago, our brother Chris introduced, introduced well a song we just sang, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And I wonder if you notice the exclamation point in the title or in the song itself. Uh, we were already proclaiming that God's grace is amazing, but that little exclamation point drives home the truth, doesn't it? John Newton, as Chris reminded us, he's that former slave trader. He wrote that song. He was, and if you read through his works, you will find that he was continually amazed by the grace of God. And I wonder, is that your experience? Are you continually amazed, regularly, maybe even daily, amazed by God's grace to you? Are you surprised by God's grace? God's grace, as you may know, is his unmerited, his unearned favor towards sinners. That means that grace can be and should be surprising and stunning. God in his grace goes after the undeserving. That's who you are. You are undeserving in the sight of God. God in his grace, he, fores, he forbears with the fallen, with the flawed. And when you think of God's grace, it, it, it makes you wonder, why hasn't he stopped this human project altogether when we are so filled with sin? And the answer must be because God longs to communicate the glories of his grace to sinners like us. And this morning, as we study Genesis chapter 38, we see God's grace to two sinners, to Judah and Tamar. And his grace to them gives us hope today. Part of God's purpose in recording the history of his amazing grace to these two sinners is so that we might be persuaded that God delights to save wretches like us. And here we learn that salvation is not of our merits, but of Christ's mercy. You recall that in the book of Genesis, it recounts how God is fulfilling his promise to send to the Son and Savior of the world to defeat sin and Satan and death. And last week, we began our study of the final major section of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapters 37 to 50, which focuses in on the sons of Jacob. Genesis chapters 37 to 50 recounts God's faithfulness to the men who will be the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, even in the face of their failure. And so in our chapter today, we see the focus shift from Joseph to Judah. And some have mistakenly claimed that this chapter is an insertion or it's an interruption to the main story about Joseph. But that's not at all true. The heartbeat of Genesis chapters 37 to 50 is God overruling the sins of his people to save his people. In Joseph, God is overruling the sins of his brothers to save them from famine. And in our chapter today, God is overruling the sins of Judah to preserve the line through whom the Messiah, the Savior, would one day come. In Genesis 38, we will see the overruling grace of God to sinners. Here we will see that Judah, he deserts God's promises. Judah and Tamar together descend into unrighteousness. And God in his mercy faithfully delivers and brings his blessings to them. Genesis 38 teaches us that though we may desert God's promises and disregard God's righteousness, in his faithfulness, God delivers us. Beloved, here's the sermon in a sentence. Though sinners desert God's promises and disregard God's righteousness, God still delivers sinners in his faithfulness. 
Though sinners desert God's promises and disregard God's righteousness, God still delivers sinners in His faithfulness. We'll look at this chapter in three sections under three headings. God's promises deserted, God's righteousness disregarded, and God's faithfulness delivered. There's a full outline provided for you there in your bulletin that may help you follow along. Let's begin with our first point, God's promises deserted. Follow along as I read Genesis 38, just verses 1 to 5 for now. Genesis 38, verses 1 to 5. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and, called, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Shezib when he bore him, when she bore him. Well, these opening verses, they describe Judah's marriage and the children from that union. But don't miss the close connection with the previous chapter. Genesis chapter 37 verse 25 told us that a caravan of traders was going down to Egypt. And Judah was the one who had the great idea to sell his brother Joseph to that caravan of traders. Genesis 37 closed with Joseph going away from his brothers in Egypt. And Judah, he charts a similar course. He goes down and away from his brothers, you see there in verse 1. Understand what Judah is doing. Judah is going away from the covenant family. Judah is going away from the family in whom the God of Israel was worshipped. The first sign of deserting the saving promises of God is often detachment from those who hold dear the saving promises of God. Christian, ask yourself regularly, are you moving away from the people of God or nearer to, closer to the people of God? Are you drawing near to those who draw near to God? Joseph, his moving away from his brothers was not his choice. Rather, it was made for him. Judah, though, Judah's move away from his brothers was his own voluntary decision. Joseph and Judah, they're going to live kind of parallel lives, and they're going to make nearly opposite choices from time to time. Joseph is going to be connected with Potiphar and Pharaoh, while Judah is going to be connected with this Adulamite you see here, whose name was Hira. Now, we don't really know much about this Adulamite yet. What we're going to find out in this chapter is that he is with Judah nearly every time Judah makes a regrettable decision. In verse 2, we see that Judah makes the regrettable decision of marrying a Canaanite. And Moses wants us to know that this is a bad decision. I mean, look at the language of verse 2. Judah, he saw her and he took her. If that language is familiar, it's because it comes up in Genesis 3, when Eve saw the forbidden fruit and she took the forbidden fruit. Moses is characterizing what Judah is doing here in a, in a way which you understand is, is negative. And if it seems like we keep coming across the subject of marrying a Canaanite over and over again in the book of Genesis, it's because we do. In Genesis 24, Abraham made sure that Isaac did not take a wife from among the Canaanites. In Genesis 28, Isaac sternly told Jacob, you must not take a wife from the Canaanites. And then, of course, in Genesis 36, we saw that Esau took wives from among the Canaanites. Of all people, here is Judah, the son of Jacob, acting like Esau, acting like a son of Esau. And as I said, the, the reason that Moses raises its concern over and over again is not because it's a matter of race, but because it's a matter of religion. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, 
verses 3 and 4, the Lord forbid the people of Israel from marrying people from among the land explicitly because they would lead them away from God to serve and follow the false gods. People from other tribes and nations were actually welcome to join Israel. And if they joined themselves to Israel's God, they were welcome to be a part of the covenant community and even marry among the covenant community. We see this in the Canaanite Rahab. We see this in the Moabite Ruth, who claimed Yahweh as her God. What is happening in Genesis 38 is that Judah, he's already going away from the covenant family, and now there's a concern that he's going away from the covenant God. This was a real danger. This is a real danger for the people of God today. Uh, the New, New Testament scriptures teach that believers in Jesus are to marry those who trust in Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, the Apostle Paul teaches us that believers are to marry only in the Lord. And part of the reason for giving us that instruction must be that God does not want us to drift away, but to draw near to him. Now, while Judah was wrong to marry this Canaanite woman, he was right to have children by her. Uh, children are the natural fruit of marriage. Being fruitful and multiplying is not just a commission given to believers, it's a creation commission given to the world in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. So we're told that Judah, he has three sons obeying this commission. He has Ur and Onan and Shelah. And in verses 6 to 11, we encounter the lives of Judah's descendants. He has gone down, and now we meet really his descendants and what they were like. Follow along now as we read verses 6 to 11 of Genesis 38. Verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord Yahweh. And the Lord Yahweh put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord Yahweh. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now Judah's corrupt character continues to be revealed in these verses, so it's not surprising that he ends up really kind of practically deserting the promises of God. In verse 6, we learn that Judah, just like Judah took a wife for himself, so he took a wife for his eldest son, Ur. And the, the setting of Judah's activity, where, where it's taking place, seems to indicate that Tamar was a Canaanite. Uh, a point of conflict is immediately introduced to us there in verse 7. You see, with Ur, Judah's firstborn. Moses tells us that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord Yahweh. And scholars have observed something intriguing about Ur and that this phrase that follows, namely that, that Ur's name actually spelled backwards is evil. So it's like evil is doing evil here. We're, we're not merely told of, we're not, not actually told of Ur's kind of specific sins, so what is the evil he's actually doing, but look carefully at the language. We're told who he is in his character, right? It's not really that he did wicked things, but that he, he was wicked. Wicked deeds spring from wicked people. Sins spring from sinners. You sin because you are a sinner. And the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, Romans 
and that death is the just payment due to our working in sin. Heir earned his judgment of death. This is serious business. It is serious business because all of your sins and your sinfulness, as we see here, it takes place in the sight of the Lord Yahweh. In verse 7, we not only learn something of Heir's character, but we also learn something of the Lord's character, right? The Lord Yahweh put Ur to death. Why? Well, because the Lord God is a holy and just God. He will not allow sins to go unpunished forever. Some wicked men, he will permit to live the length of their days, to, to die in their old age, and then call them before his judgment throne. But others, he will put to death in the prime of their lives. Friend, are you prepared to stand before God today. The only way that you will be prepared to stand before the holy and just God is if you confess that you are wicked in His sight. The only way that you will be prepared to stand before the holy and just God is that if you confess that you are deserving of being put to death for your sin. If you agree with God about your sin. The only way that you will be prepared to stand before the holy and just God is if you confess that your only hope is in His Son, Jesus Christ. That your only hope is that Jesus lived the life that you have not lived, the life of perfect righteousness, of sinlessness, and obedience before God the Father. If you confess that your only hope is that Jesus died for you, paying the penalty for your sins, and your only hope is that Jesus was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins, you must confess that Jesus was raised from the grave on the third day for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might be clothed in His Righteousness. This is the only way that you'll be able to stand before the holy and just God. If you turn from your sins and you place your faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, do that today. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. With the death of Ur, Judah turns to Onan there in verse 8, you see. Judah charges Onan with the responsibility of raising up offspring for his brother. Uh, this practice is further elaborated in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 10. It has, uh, this practice has commonly been called leveret marriage because it comes from the Latin term levir, which means brother-in-law. Uh, this was why we read the passage actually earlier from Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 20, earlier in the service. The question that the Sadducees asked Jesus about uh, marriage in the resurrection assumed the practice of leveret marriage. This practice of leveret marriage was important in ancient Israel for at least two reasons. First, was to make sure that the land inheritance in Israel remained in the family. And the second was to continue to perpetuate the line of the Messiah. If Judah has no male descendants beyond Ur and Onan or Shelah, then the line through whom the Messiah would come ends. That's why he charges Onan with raising up offspring after his brother. But the problem we discover is that Onan is also wicked, like his brother before him. He is greedy, and he gratifies the desires of his flesh. When we're told in verse 9 that Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, what that means is that he didn't want the inheritance to pass to Ur's descendants. You see, legally speaking, in leveret marriage, any offspring that Onan had with Tamar would be considered the son of Ur. So Onan didn't want the inheritance to pass on to his brother's children. He wanted the inheritance to pass on to his children, to come into his household. That's why he wastes his semen on the ground. And Onan, in this act, is acting contrary to the commission of being fruitful and multiplying. Life, 
Seed is not meant to be wasted, but implanted. This is a principle which has implications for a biblical sexual ethic. Life, seed, is not meant to be wasted, but implanted. Onan's decision, his defilement of the earth, springs from his own selfishness. Selfishness is one of the reasons that some married people do not pursue children. Uh, being a deliberate dink, which um, is the popular parlance for double income, no kids, is running contrary to God's design for married people. Married people should pursue children. And Onan's hateful actions, they pursue his pleasure, but they endanger Tamar's provision. Onan keeps Tamar barren, and therefore he endangers her future. If she does not have a son, she will be left destitute, having no one to care for her. Don't let this escape your sight. What Onan does is wicked in the sight of the Lord, and that's why Onan is put to death. This is no small sin. It's worthy of death, according to the Lord Yahweh. It is rebellion against God and his commands. Judah knows that his duty to Tamar is to give her his next son, Shelah, but he doesn't. Sadly, Judah sends Tamar away. She should have lived in his house and under his care until Sheila came of age, but instead she is despised and rejected. She's viewed as something of a, a black widow to Judah's sons. <clears throat> Judah is not at all contemplating that it could be his sons who are the problem. They are the problem. Moses tells us that. It is fear, not faithfulness or faith in God's promises that lead Judah to send Tamar away. And with the sending of Tamar away, with seemingly no intention of giving her to his son, Shelah, Judah is deserting the promises of God. Dwelling in Canaan, down and away from his brothers, Judah is on the brink of his own name disappearing and being forgotten in history. But God has another plan. God's plan is for the line of the Messiah to come through Judah and Tamar. Tamar is like Leah in that she is God's chosen instrument. She might be despised and rejected by others, but in God's sight she is chosen and precious. God loves to shame the wisdom of the wise. He loves to overturn our expectations and overrule sin for his saving purposes. That's what we see in our second point in Genesis chapter 38, verses 12 to 26. Here we see the human actors disregard God's righteousness. Meanwhile, God is at work overruling their sin and accomplishing his saving purposes. Let's turn now and consider our second point, God's righteousness disregarded. Follow along as I read Genesis 38, just verses 12 to 19 for now. Genesis 38, verses 12 to 19. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to an aim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? 
He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. These verses, you'll notice, they begin by uh, informing us that Judah's wife has died. We're told about halfway through verse 12 that Judah was comforted, which means that the time of his mourning was complete. And Moses is hinting at the fact that since Judah was comforted, he would be looking for the comfort of a woman. Suddenly, his friend Hira the Adulamite comes back into the picture. Hira was around when Judah chose to marry a Canaanite woman, and now he is around when Judah chooses to pursue a prostitute. And let's just pause and take in the importance of good and godly friendship. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 33, the Bible says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. I mean, did you hear that? Paul began that admonition with the phrase, Do not be deceived. It may be that friends deceive us, but more likely, we have deceived ourselves into thinking that the company that we keep would have no moral impact on us. Children and young people, choose your friends wisely. Their morality will rub off on you. It will shape your morality. Don't keep bad company. Morally boring company is preferable to the popularity and wicked excitement that comes along with bad friends. Listen to Proverbs chapter 22, verses 24 and 25, which says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Why? Solomon says, Lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. You see, we learn the ways of others in and through friendship. That's part of God's design. We're, we're actually meant to learn from our friends. So we need to be discerning in making friendships. Judah has fallen in with a faulty friend. And you should be careful not to do the same. Choose your friends wisely and well. In verses 13 to 15, we see that Tamar, she, she takes matters into her own hands. Since Judah has deserted the promise to give his son Shelah to her in marriage, Tamar, she devises this plan to secure her welfare. And it hinges on Tamar dressing and playing the part of a prostitute. And from this, you should learn to resist the impulse to secure your rights by means of sin. Resist the impulse to secure your rights by means of sin. Tamar, she had been wronged. She had a right to Shelah as her husband. Due to fear, Judah abandoned the promises of God and the righteousness of God. Judah should have given Shelah to Tamar as her husband. This is the wrong way to get the right thing. And sisters, our world will tempt you to do the same. The world will tempt you to draw a man to yourself by dressing like a prostitute. In fact, presently, our world is simultaneously struggling with two sins when it comes to clothing the body. On the one hand, our world tempts young women to conceal too much of their God-given sex so that we can't tell that they're women. On the other hand, our world tempts young women to reveal too much of their God-given sex so that we know that she is a woman who wants to be wanted. That's what is happening with Tamar here. And ladies, I know that it's difficult to find clothing that rightly displays your femininity, 
And actually, you should wear clothing that displays the glories of your femininity. All curves do not have to be covered over. And all curves do not have to be called out for all to see. There is an appropriate place for feeling wanted and attractive. And as one godly individual has long said, modest is hottest. Men, let me say a word to you. You must not look upon a woman with lust. Jesus tells us that plainly in the Sermon on the Mount, and that it's sin. And that sin, the sin of lust, is your sin. It's not a woman's sin. Your first look may be accidental, but the second look and the lingering look are your willful and sinful choice, not hers. Tamar sinned in her dress. Judah sinned in his desire. Tamar and Judah's actions are very telling, aren't they? I mean, Tamar wanted safety and security, but she sinned to get it. Judah wanted selfish satisfaction, and he would sin to get it. Men, it is a sin to go to a prostitute. Our God strictly forbids it. Uh, listen to the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. He writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Men never go to a prostitute. Never do what Judah does here. Realize, men, that your heart and mind go to a prostitute before your body does. Make sure there are brothers in your life who know your temptations and who are ready to help you fight for purity in head and heart and body. Tamar must have known what kind of man Judah was. In order to dress like this, having a reason for dressing like this, she must have known what kind of man Judah was. He was a, a man of passion and a man of the flesh. His sons probably didn't fall too far from the tree. For when he turns toward Tamar there in verse 16, he disregards God's righteousness. Tamar, she begins the negotiations with Judah. Tamar has veiled her eyes, but it's actually Judah is the, who, is the one who is blind, right? He doesn't see that this is his daughter-in-law, that he rejected and wronged. And after Tamar asks, what will you give me? Judah offers a young goat from his flock for intimacy with Tamar. All of this is deeply sad and sinful. Marital intimacy was not designed by God to be secured through an economic transaction. Marital intimacy was designed by God to be the expression of the consummation of when two souls have become one. While giving herself away, Tamar guards herself from being taken advantage of. She requires promissory pledge from Judah. Tamar doesn't just ask for one thing, she asks for three identifying markers from Judah there in verse 18. She requires his signet and cord and staff. The signet and cord, they, they probably actually go together. Judah's signet would likely have been a kind of a, a cylindrical seal that he would worn around a coat around his neck. Um, the signet not only identified Judah as a man of prominence, but it could be useful to send legal documents. So you'd kind of roll it out to mark a legal document or send official correspondence. Judah's staff or a scepter that we see here, probably had his name etched on top of it. The point is that all of these items uniquely identify the owner, right? Today, they might be the equivalent to your passport and driver's license and social security card, so that when all three are brought together, they unmistakably identify you. Judah, he divests himself of his identity and his integrity when he agrees to give Tamar his personal effects. 
and he seems to think nothing of it. When marital intimacy is downgraded to an economic transaction, both the giver and the taker are dehumanized and dehumanizing one another. Judah was deceived, but Tamar we see conceived, and forever they will be joined together through children. Let's read what happens next. Follow along as I read Genesis 38, verses 20 to 26. Genesis 38, verses 20 to 26. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Inane at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cold prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. In verses 20 to 23, Judah, he attempts to conceal his folly and unrighteousness. He sends his suspicious friend Hira the Adolamite to recover his personal effects. And Hira has to return to Judah with the embarrassing news that there's no cult prostitute at the place where he met Tamar. Now, this is surprising to Judah. Uh, cult prostitutes were common in Canaan. They were a part of the pagan religion that was spread throughout the land. Herdsmen and farmers would visit them, not merely for personal pleasure, but because they believed, as a religious act, they expressing fertility with the prostitute would bring fertility to their flocks and farmlands. When Judah, Judah turned aside to Tamar, he was doing more than just gratifying the lust of his flesh. He was joining with the false religion of the Canaanites. He had disregarded God's righteousness and had worshipped and served other gods. Moreover, he was risking public embarrassment, having his Adulamite friend going around asking, where's the cult prostitute that needs to be paid? Men, you would do well to regularly read Proverbs chapters 5 and 6 and 7. Those chapters reveal how sexual immorality robs you of wealth and strength and life. Don't give away your identity, your income, and your integrity for a few moments of pleasure. That is the path that leads, not just down to disrepute, as Judah's worried about here, but as the Proverbs teach us, it leads down to death. Spiritual and sometimes physical death. In verses 24 to 26, Judah discovers the truth about what has happened. But notice how the, the veil's kind of slowly pulled back from his eyes. First, he discovers that Tamar has been immoral and that this immorality has led to pregnancy. Beloved, as those who hold the Bible to be true, authoritative, and an all-sufficient guide for life and godliness, we cannot treat sexual immorality as triviality. It ought not be so among the people of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul powerfully proclaims, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness 
must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Pray that we would be a congregation that not only takes this sin seriously, but that takes God's side against this sin and all sin. This doesn't mean that forgiveness is not available. Of course, forgiveness is available when we sin sexually. As Mr. Spurgeon once said, he who thinks lightly of sin thinks lightly of the Savior. Let us come to terms with the gravity of this sin. Tamar's actions and Judah's actions are characterized here as immoral, and they were indeed immoral. They were wrong. They were sinful. They were wicked in the sight of God. And already in this chapter, in the death of Onan, God has revealed that he is ready to immediately judge those who commit sexual immorality. Let us never make light of such sin against God, or laugh about it, or laugh it off. It is sin against God, and it's sin against those made in his image. Judah and Tamar sin against God and against one another. Nothing justified Tamar's deeds, not even the threat of destitution because Judah was derelict toward his, his duty toward Tamar. Nothing justified Judah's deeds, not even his own perception of his so-called, quote, biological needs. There's never any justification for sin. Judah, in verse 24, speaks with a heavy dose of hypocrisy, doesn't he? He declares that Tamar should be put to death by fire. Judah is guilty of the same sin as she is. Judah is to pretend that he's pretending to hold to the righteousness of heaven while he himself has deployed the unrighteousness of hell. It is part of how hypocrites respond to sin. Hypocrites loathe the sin which they have lived. It's part of how they conceal their sin by calling out the same sin in others. The difficulty with hypocrisy is that there's partial truth in a hypocrite's claim. Right? Judah is not altogether wrong in recognizing that the punishment for adultery is death. So when Moses gives the law in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, and in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, he announces that the punishment for adultery was indeed death. And in the latter text, Moses tells us that the aim was to purge the evil from Israel. Before Tamar is brought to Judah, she sends Judah's identifying effects to him. It's here that Judah's folly comes full circle, and he discovers the truth. His eyes finally see the woman behind the veil. He is the man by whom Tamar is pregnant. And in many ways, this brings things full circle for Judah and his dabbling with deceit. Do you remember how Judah suggested the brothers deceive their father Jacob in Genesis 37? He suggested they deceive their father Jacob by means of a goat and a coat. That coat was uniquely identifying apparel. No other brother in the family had a coat with long sleeves or that was rich in color. And do you remember what the brothers asked their father to do with that coat that they sent to him? They asked Jacob to identify it. What has just happened here with Judah and Tamar? What has been involved in Judah's deception but a goat and uniquely identifying apparel? What did Tamar ask Judah to do? The same thing that Judah asked his father to do a chapter earlier, to identify the apparel sent to him. Judah is made to answer the same question he made his father answer. And the Lord seems to bring this question before Judah to begin to work on his conscience for what he's done to his brother Joseph. Beloved, here we see that our sins will find us out. Judah is confessing his sin and guilt there in verse 26. 
when he proclaims, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. True repentance involves confessing sin specifically and honest admission of guilt. Judah's remark here is not a declaration that Tamar is innocent. He is not approving of her deceit or of her sexual immorality. Rather, what Judah is confessing is that Tamar's actions were aimed at fulfilling the righteous responsibility of leveret marriage. That must be the case given that he said there, since I did not give her to my son. Judah had tried to avoid leveret marriage for Tamar, and Tamar tried to accomplish it. Judah is confessing that he had disregarded God's righteousness in the matter, but Tamar pursued it. She pursued it wrongly, but she pursued it nonetheless. That phrase there at the end of verse 26, and he did not know her again, communicates a number of things. First, that Judah did not continue to pursue sexual immorality with Tamar. For those who are in a sexually immoral relationship, that is the first step of repentance. Stop it. And this signals Judah's repentance and his renewal. Did you know that? By God's power and grace, you can change. Indeed, in the rest of the narrative of Genesis, Judah appears to undergo a slow transformation of character. He is changing. Here in Genesis 38, we find Judah to be a man who uses others for his own pleasure. Judah sacrifices people for his satisfaction. But by the time we reach Genesis 44, Judah is confessing his sin against his brother Joseph, and he's sacrificing his life to save his youngest brother Benjamin. God saves sinners, and God changes sinners. Friend, God can change you. God changed Judah from a selfish man to a sacrificial man, and it began with his repentance. Friend, maybe you need to repent today like Judah. Maybe you need to confess your guilt, your danger, and your helplessness before God. Friend, sin is enslaving, and repentance, turning away from sin, is freeing. The path of sin is the path of death and despair. The path of repentance is the path of eternal light, delight in Jesus Christ. If you're struggling with sin, confess it to God and confess it to a brother or sister in Christ. Let us point one another to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who, as we sang earlier, paid it all. And let us help one another break the shackles of sin and walk in the power of the resurrected Christ. What is most remarkable about our text is that God does not abandon his people or his promises. Judah may have deserted God's promises. Judah and Tamar may have disregarded God's righteousness, but God remained faithful. And we see that he remained faithful in the children that Tamar delivers. Let's turn now and consider our third and final point. God's faithfulness delivered. Follow along now as I read verses 27 to 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. These verses are remarkable. God in his abundant kindness blesses Judah and Tamar, not merely with one son, but with two. Remember, Judah has lost two sons already, Ur and Onan. But God in his rich provision has given two sons to Judah. How kind of God to deal so generously with a man who had deserted God's promises and disregarded God's righteousness. 
I wonder, do you give thanks to God for how he has dealt so graciously and generously with you, even though you have sinned against him? Do you give thanks to God for revealing his son to you? Do you give thanks to God for providing you with food and shelter and clothing and fellowship with his people? Because of our sin, we deserve to be dead at this very moment and under the judgment of God. But God has been so patient and kind and generous to us, like he was with Judah and Tamar. I love how this chapter ends with verses 28 to 30. They show us God's hidden hand. They, they show us God's powerful and providential hand. Here we learn that the hero of the story is neither Judah nor Tamar, but God. Why? Because God is reprising his past faithfulness and calling to mind his promises. These twins and their birth reprise Jacob and Esau in Genesis chapter 25. Do you remember Jacob and Esau, how they were struggling in Rebekah's womb? Do you remember how God prophesied that the older would serve the younger? Well, something similar is happening here. A reversal happens. Zerah comes out first, or actually, he sticks his hand out first, and then he draws it back. He's not going to be the one through whom the line of the Messiah comes. Esau might have come out first, but it was through Jacob that the blessings and the promises of God would come. Zerah gets that scarlet cord tied around his wrist to identify him as the firstborn, but God immediately upends everyone's expectations and sends Perez out. Perez's name means something like breach or breakthrough. And that's because God's faithfulness will continue its breakthrough in Perez and his descendants. The birth of Perez here continues the long arc of God's saving purposes that eventually culminate in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to fast forward in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, you would find a story of a woman whose husband dies. And she is rescued from destitution through levirate marriage to Boaz. When Ruth and Boaz get married, the people of the town, they, they gather together, they utter a benediction over her. They pray that the Lord would build up her house. They pray that her house would be like the house of Paris, whom Tamar bore to Judah. God in his kindness gives them a child. And at the end of the book of Ruth, we read this genealogy that begins with Perez and ends with David, the king. When the author of Ruth wants to encourage discouraged Israelites through a genealogy, he begins with Perez. He begins with Perez and tells us that a king is coming, that King David is pointing to King Jesus. In a time in the book of Ruth, when there was no king in Israel and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, or we may put it like this, when Israel was deserting God's promises and disregarding God's righteousness, God was delivering his people through his faithfulness by sending them a king. God was savingly at work in this sordid story of Judah and Tamar. God was overruling their sinfulness and sending his chosen son. And we see this as the New Testament opens. Did you realize that the first woman mentioned in the New Testament is not Mary, but Tamar? Of all people, God's ways, they continue to surprise us. God chooses what was foolish in the eyes of the wise. God chooses what is weak in the eyes of the world. God chooses what is lowly and despised. And Matthew's gospel opens like this. Matthew chapter 1, just verses 1 to 3. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Beloved, do you see the great faithfulness and amazing grace of our God in this? And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. Think about this chapter. Judah, he deserts God's promises, God's people, moving away from them. Judah and Tamar together disregard God's righteousness. And yet, in his faithfulness, God is still at work delivering sinners. I confess that there is a certain kind of video that almost always brings me to tears. I wonder if you've seen these videos where people who are deaf, they hear for the first time. Suddenly, little boys and girls, they hear their mom's and dad's voices. Their eyes explode in wonder and excitement, and surprise. Suddenly, husbands hear their wives and their voices, and they laugh, and they cry, all at the same time. It seems to me that when it comes to the grace of God, this should be our reaction almost daily. I mean, for daily in our sinfulness, we momentarily abandon God's promises. We disregard God's righteousness, and yet, in His grace, God remains faithful to His promises to save us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Daily, it should be clear to us that our salvation and our eternal hope is entirely bound up with Jesus, that He's the hero of our lives, and that in His grace we are eternally bound to Him, and He will not let us go. Let us rejoice in that each and every day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks to your enormous grace to us in Jesus Christ. Father, you know the darkness of our hearts. You know the, the deceit that rolls around in our hearts and that sometimes comes out of our mouths and our lives. You know the wicked deeds that we sometimes do. And Father, you love us and you forgive us all because of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray and ask that daily you would help us to be surprised by your grace and thankful for it. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.